Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Mortiza Hossein, reporter with The Intercept. Back in 2015, along with a colleague, Razan Ghalini, I began investigating the story of the Fort Dix Five. Federal authorities arrested six men on Monday night for allegedly conspiring to attack Fort Dix in New Jersey in order to kill as many U.S. soldiers as possible. The philosophy that supports and encourages jihad around the world against Americans came to live here in New Jersey and threaten the lives of our citizens through these defendants. Fortunately, law enforcement in New Jersey was here to stop them. Back in 2007, the FBI and New Jersey police arrested a group of men, alleging they were planning to attack the Fort Dix military base in New Jersey. Three of the men were brothers in their 20s who had spent years in the US. These homegrown terrorists can prove to be as dangerous as any known group, if not more so. They operate under the radar. They have no specific command and control. They strike when they feel it is right, whenever that might be. But these brothers had no connection to any terror group, and we later reported that paid FBI informants concocted the supposed terror plot in the first place. The plot that eventually landed the brothers in prison for life. This case is just one example of how the U.S. government began carrying out the war on terror within its own borders. Instead of hardened terrorists, the government often went after people who posed no real threat to the United States. It's been 20 years since the 9-11 attacks, 20 years since the beginning of the war on terror, 20 years since the U.S. launched two wars leading to millions dead and wounded. We also saw unmanned drones killing innocent civilians, widespread surveillance, innocent people imprisoned, and perpetual human rights abuses and war crimes. Trillions of dollars squandered. And we're now seeing a turning point in the war in Afghanistan, with the Taliban retaking the country. Throughout these 20 years, we've seen terrible systematic failures across institutions, whether it be the government, military leadership, and even the press. And for the elite responsible for this mess? There hasn't been any accountability. That's Rosina Ali. She's a journalist and contributing writer with New York Times Magazine and a fellow at Type Media Center. She's also writing a book about Islamophobia. The people who actually led us into these wars are still there. They still have platforms. The journalists who helped sell these wars still have platforms. The generals and the military people and the experts who helped justify and propagate the the atrocities that took place, they still have platforms and they have money and they have lucrative careers. Rosina has reported extensively on the war on terror, including on the domestic front 
and how the United States government carried out horrific policies within its own borders. She joins me now to discuss the legacy of the war on terror and the end of the war in Afghanistan. I think what's really tragic about the pullout from Afghanistan 20 years later, I should say that I completely agree with Biden's decision to pull out. But what is tragic is that it's not the trillions of dollars that we wasted. It's not the millions of lives that have been lost. It's not um, the atrocities that we've committed. Those were not the reasons for us leaving. I think it was it, it was a fatigue with forever wars. Uh, it was a fatigue with our ability to actually gain anything in Afghanistan that ultimately led to us pulling out. And the fact that so many of the crimes have gone unreckoned with is really tragic. The war ended very abruptly. There was this uh, terrible uh, denouement in Kabul where people were falling off planes and there was total chaos and the Taliban uh, took over the country in the course of about 10 days. And, you know, this is a worse ending to a war in many ways than the end of the Vietnam War because, the you know, the regime the U.S. propped up there lasted quite a bit longer. Uh, there was a spectacle in Saigon when they left. But, you know, in many ways, this is worse. And yet it doesn't seem like, as far as I've seen, there's been no expression of serious contrition from the Biden administration. No one has resigned. None of the people who were involved in propagating the war at a high level have uh, put themselves up as to blame for this. How can it be that all these terrible things happened and no one is to blame? And what does that say about our political system and the future of the system if we have a system where elites are totally unaccountable? Like, what has happened to the people who helped propagate this big failure in Afghanistan? And what ideally should happen to them? Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons that there hasn't been accountability, and I have to say, when I watched the first Biden White House press conference. It was time to be honest with the American people again. We no longer had a clear purpose in an open-ended mission in Afghanistan. After 20 years of war in Afghanistan, I refused to send another generation of America's sons and daughters to fight a war that should have ended long ago. I was pretty angry because as smart as it was politically, he in no way acknowledged the 20 years of atrocities by Americans on Afghans. And in no way did he acknowledge any of the failures or, or try to explain why and how the Taliban took over so quickly. I don't think we're going to see that coming. I think one reason is, is because even though we've pulled out of Afghanistan, the war on terror still continues. And I think it's just an awkward position for the elites to take if they say the war on terror was wrong in the first place. I don't think that we have political elites willing to do that just yet. I think that actually has really chilling consequences. I mean, it really erodes trust in government. It erodes uh, trust in our justice system. I mean, I think, you know, we kind of, because we've been talking about Afghanistan, we forget that in 2003, we had the biggest anti-war protests in history. Millions of people from New York to London to Rome and in scores of other cities took to the streets to protest against any U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. The people of this country have come together to say we stop this war before it starts. 
there were people coming to the streets to protest against the invasion of Iraq, and it still happened. And the invasions, it wasn't just the atrocities, but the invasions done in our name. That is something that we have to live with in the fact that no one has been held accountable. And in fact, you know, Gina Haspel, who helped torture people, she was made the head of the CIA. That I think that just speaks to the fact that we don't actually want to recognize the ills and the crimes we've committed in the war on terror. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at the end of the this war, like the ending of it was so spectacularly ugly in the sense that there was, you know, these scenes at the airport. Uh, there was a ISIS-K attack at the same airport. There was a drone strike against a family in Kabul. And there were all these people left behind by the sudden collapse of the government and the apparent uh, catastrophic intelligence failures, which failed to predict that. What what would accountability look like for these things? And why is it that the people in power, like the Biden administration and the generals and so forth, are so unwilling to even admit the slightest error? Because I think me and you discussed this drone strike, to give one illustrated example. It seems to be very clearly something terrible happened. And yet nobody is actually coming forward and saying this is wrong and we did something wrong in clear light of view. Is there something about the elite class in the U.S. with a military political that forecloses them from acting, from expressing uh, actual guilt for clear mistakes? And is it because they're afraid if they do that, they would be subject to accountability? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, before we get into that, I just, you know, just to comment on the failure of the pullout from Afghanistan. I actually think it was the best of the worst case scenario. What I had thought was going to happen was that the government would fall, that the Taliban would take over, but I didn't think it would happen for so quickly. And I did think that the U.S. would continue providing resources and money and potentially air power to the government. I thought it was going to descend into a civil war. And the fact that there is relative peace, at least right now, there's relative peace in Afghanistan. That was actually shocking. And um, it, it was in some ways better than I expected it to be. As for the question about accountability, I think a part of it is that it's not in anyone's interest. <laughs> like, obviously, it's not, it, it, you know, it's not in anyone's interest, but The war on terror has gotten bipartisan support for so long, and it's largely been driven by an elite consensus. Yeah, no, it's a, everyone's implicated in this. So there's a conspiracy of silence on all, it's everyone's interest to continue the conspiracy of silence. It it seems that way of not having accountability. You know, there's that famous quote from Obama at the start of the Obama administration, right, you know, after the end of the Bush administration, these terrible crimes have clearly been committed. Public anger was so high. And you, there was a moment where it seemed like, you know, there could have been political legitimacy to have accountability for some of the terrible things like the, you know, non-existent of WMD precipitating a major war, torture, all these other violations of the uh, rule of law. And Obama said that uh, the consistent theme was look forward, not backward. We're still evaluating how we are going to uh, approach the whole issue of uh, interrogations, detentions, uh, and so forth. Uh, and obviously we're going to be looking at past practices. Uh, and uh, I don't believe that anybody is above the law. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I also have a belief that we need to look forward 
as low as opposed to look, looking backwards. And it seems like that look forward, not backward is a uh, it's like the motto of the elite, because it means like, you know, I cover your back, you cover my back. And, you know, we all make sure that we can uh, meet up at the Yale alumni party or whatever in a couple of years and, you know, have a drink and it's fine. <laughs> you know, there's actually there's a uh, quote I remember during the 2008 financial crisis in Wall Street. And I think this was so like haunting and also so relevant to how seemingly everything operates today at the elite level. Uh, at the time, when you know, they're unpacking the collapse of these big financial institutions and the failure of, uh, you know, institutional failure that led to that, there was a quote with a Wall Street uh, executive, and he was off the record, or it was anonymous. But he said that, you know, inside the organization, we had a motto, or we had a saying, which is like, look, you know, we're developing all these products. We don't really know what's happening here. In a way, we're losing control of them, or we're losing control of the long-term consequences of them. They're very risky. But hey, look, IBG, YBG. So I'll be gone, you'll be gone. So people stay in the job for two years, three years at most maybe, and then they move on. And then whatever happens the next time, it's like the next person's problem. So, you know, they had that attitude and then it kind of helped everyone evade responsibility for that too. Who was held accountable for the 2008 financial crisis? Nobody really. And it seems like the government too is the same as that. Because as you said, like, okay, Biden ended the Afghanistan war. The war started 20 years ago under like two presidents ago, three presidents ago. And, you know, there's that. And even Obama could say, well, my predecessor started it. And then the buck seemingly can always be pushed back to somebody else. And as a result, the people who are responsible at the time are not directly in position of power necessarily. But they still seem to be floating around. Like in, you know, as you mentioned earlier, they are in business, they're in you know, media, they're uh, appearing on television, all these things. It seems like there's, there should there is a return address when it comes to accountability. But... As you said, I think uh, quite eloquently, you're starting to say is that, uh, you know, there's a they're all in it together in a way, and you know it sounds like simple and sounds like uh, it sounds conspiratorial, but it's like this is a clearly mundane reality that uh, they represent sort of the same class, and uh, it's in their interest not to hold people accountable for what happened because then someone might else hold them accountable for their own crimes in the future. You know, if nobody's held accountable in the long term, we're going to have a very hard time having effective government. Yeah, I agree. And I think also a part of it is that the economics of this, of the entire um, war on terror, has actually incentivized no accountability. After 9-11, there was so much money poured into the Pentagon, into creating so many agencies, into think tanks and universities and there were now, you know, scores of private contractors doing really disgusting work of fighting and killing people abroad. And then here, uh, we had private institutions kind of being experts in counterterrorism. And there's been a revolving door between law enforcement and military and government officials um, going through these industries. And War has been financially lucrative, whether it's here in the U.S. Um, in its counterterrorism measures or if it's abroad in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, anywhere. One of the things, speaking about accountability, that I still sometimes just kind of feel a little hopeless about is the fact that when we do try to hold people to account, it's usually not the people in charge, but low-level people. Not only is there no accountability, but there is such little reckoning of it 
from even former officials. Um, I don't think it's all that surprising when a lot of people don't want to really hear what Bush or Obama have to say. So, you know, Rosina, I want to pivot a bit because a lot of your writing, in addition to foreign policy and the foreign effects of the war on terror, touches on the other major front of the war on terror, which was domestically. Abroad, we had wars, we had uh, extrajudicial assassinations, we had the drone program, we had the rendition program. But in the domestic war on terror, you know, it really targeted American citizens and uh, immigrants and permanent residents and so forth. Can you tell us a bit about what exactly, like what happened in the U.S., or what, what process began in the U.S. after 9-11 and how to target uh, specifically most people from Muslim-majority countries living here or people whose uh, ethnic background or religious background tied into the world? Yeah, I mean, the, the immediate thing that happened was that there were mass detentions. Um, and this was, you know, it was the most immediate policy after the attacks where law enforcement, FBI, local police departments, they were arresting people off the streets, from their homes, from their workplaces, detaining them even though they had no link to terrorism. And in some cases, kept them in prison for almost two years without any charges. That was completely acceptable <laughs> in, in the U.S. And, you know, after that, policies started propping up and they were justified and they were allowed with a legal cloak and with congressional oversight. We had the Patriot Act, of course, uh, that allowed mass surveillance. We had a registry started by the Bush administration in 2003 called NSEERS that required Muslim boys and men from 25 Muslim-majority countries to register. And about 80,000 men registered. There were no links to terrorism, but thousands of them were deported. And what's astonishing is that even though the Bush administration kept this registry going active for maybe one or two years, it was still technically on the books until organizers and activists came to Obama before he left office to tell him to dismantle it. And the reason they did so is because they knew very well that it could be revived under the Trump administration or any other executive. There should be a lot of systems beyond database. I mean, we should have a lot of systems. And today you can do it. But right now we have to have a border. We have to have strength. We have to have a wall. And we cannot let what's happening to this country happen. But that's something your White House would like to oh, oh, I would certainly implement that. You know, I think one of the more lasting effects of 9-11 and the leg more lasting legacies of 9-11 here is just this erosion of civil and constitutional rights not only of Muslims, but of all Americans. Um, and it's not just because Muslims were surveilled, but because their speech was targeted. Their political speech was used to arrest them, and their political speech was used then in the court of law to convict them and sometimes send them to jail for 10, 20, 30 years. Obviously, The Intercept has this amazing database, and it clearly shows that most of the men who landed up in prison, had not actually committed an actual act of violence, and yet they were in prison for terrorism-related charges. And this is the same counterterrorism industry that is 
actually being expanded 20 years later rather than being curtailed. And despite all the work that journalists have done and activists have done to show how problematic these policies have been, this counterterrorism apparatus is actually being expanded to target domestic terrorism. And, you know, we want to say that that's perhaps good because of the rise of the far right. But we've seen repeatedly in history, in American history, you don't even have to go that far back, that such policies are used not against white people, but against minorities. They're often used against immigrants, the black community, the brown community. And that's kind of what's already happening now. Rosina, I know you've written a lot about, and The Intercept's written a lot about as well, the uh, these entrapment cases, which became the bread and butter of the FBI's domestic war on terrorism at home. Uh, several hundred people, you know, in the high hundreds, perhaps more than that, have been arrested on terrorism charges across these two decades. And many of them have fit a particular profile. And you wrote about one case about this uh, young man, uh, in New York City, who was arrested and accused of being a plot to bomb Herald Square. Can you tell us about, a bit about who this man was and, you know, what his characteristics were and how in some way he was symbolic of the type of people who were arrested or uh, targeted for these uh, in- informant sting operations post 9-11? So this, this man, Shahavar Mateen Siraj, he and his family came to the U.S. in 1998. And I will admit that when I first read about his case back in 2006, after he was convicted, I thought he was a terrorist. I thought he was someone who was legitimately attempting to bomb Herald Square, which is what the NYPD claimed. It wasn't until after I started looking into this case that I started wondering, there's something wrong here. And one of the things that drew me was the fact that his family is Ismaili, which is a a small minority sect of Shia Islam. And my family is Ismaili. And, you know, there's this reputation of Ismailis modernizing and being uh, and really assimilating in whichever culture that they that they live in. And it's very, very unusual to see or hear of an Ismaili who supposedly became radical. And so I started looking into this case and I started speaking to his mother and his family. And really what happened here is that here's this kid. He came to the U.S. when he was 16, didn't really have friends, wasn't going to high school here. Instead, because his family was working class, because they were immigrants, you know, they, there was a family of four that shared a one-bedroom apartment in Jackson Heights. He just started work. He just started working to help make ends meet. In 2001, he started working at his uncle's store. It's an Islamic bookstore in Brooklyn. And the commute is long. It's an hour and a half, and it goes straight from Queens into Brooklyn via Herald Square. So he would have to transfer at Herald Square every single day. He was a bit slow. He didn't really have... uh, He actually has a low IQ. And... One day, this man comes into the store and starts talking to him. He's a much older man, and he seems suave and interesting, and he seems really interested in Mateen, telling him he's very smart, wanting to hear his, Mateen's opinions on foreign policy, on what's going to happen. 
for Mathine, who isn't really taken seriously by anyone, this is exciting. And at the same time, you know, like much of the rest of America, he's also become curious about Islam. He's become curious about his own religion. Uh, Ismailism is very different from Sunni Islam. So he's becoming curious about Islam. He's deciding to go to the mosque. And this new friend he meets, Osama, he just becomes a father figure to Mathine. They build a friendship for over a year and a half. And at some point in their conversations, Osama and Mathine start talking about how the U.S. is doing such horrible things abroad that they should, they should do something to target the U.S. economically. And Mathine said this repeatedly. He did not want to hurt Americans. He wanted to hurt America economically. So they were trying to come up with ideas. And eventually they settled on the fact that they might, you know, place a bomb in Herald Square. Osama was an informant with the FBI, and he was recording his conversations with Mathine for about two months. In these two months, a lot of the conversations were about how they were going to pursue this plan. And the driving force was Osama's eagerness. He really wanted Mathine to place the bombs. He really wanted to pursue the plan. So he would kept telling Mathine, draw me a map, draw me a blueprint. Here is the backpack that you would carry it in. And in their final conversation, in their final recorded conversation, Mathine tells him, no, I don't want to place a bomb. And he actually tells him this 18 times in a conversation, 18 times. Four days later, Mathine is arrested by the NYPD. And I think a lot of people at the time, his lawyer, Mathine, his family, they all thought, this is going to blow over. This is ridiculous. You know, Mathine hasn't done anything. Mathine is arrested and locked up in solitary confinement for a year and a half, almost two years before his trial. So already he is in a bad state of mind. He doesn't recall memories. He's been in solitary confinement, which will screw up with anyone's brain. When the trial happens, he is forced to testify and remember conversations that he's had two, three, four years ago. Because the only thing that the prosecution has against him is really what he said. You know, what he said or what books he might have shared with people. That's it. He doesn't have a history of violence. This trial went on for four weeks. He was convicted of foreign terrorism and sentenced to 30 years in jail. The sentence that was just imposed of 30 years is completely outrageous. It makes him a symbol of the war on terror rather than sentencing of an individual human being. It's unfortunate that the New York City Police Department created a crime in order to solve it and claim a victory in the war on terror. And the sentence of 30 years is draconian, totally draconian. He has a low IQ. He never committed an actual act of violence. And sadly, the driving force, the, the reason that the government was able to succeed in its case against him was because there was an informant. He was essentially entrapped. And even though entrapment has been used successfully as a defense in cases for drugs or other crimes, it has never been used successfully in a terrorism case. And part of the reason is because courts have been very deferential to the government on national security issues. So this young man, he got 30 years in jail. But if I recall incorrectly, there was no connection to any foreign terrorist group or actual terrorists 
in anyone's case? No, none. He had no ties to an actual terrorist group. And this is something that comes up over and over again. So for among the hundreds of men that have been put away after 9-11 in prison, they actually don't have ties to a terrorist group. The only reason that they're in jail is because they've been entrapped or because the U.S. uses, you know, murky laws, broadened laws like material support. You know, the fact that these people are then kept in high security prisons and solitary confinement, there's little understanding of what the justification for that is, especially if they never had connections to a terrorist group in the first place. And no one was harmed either. There's no, no, there's no victim in any of these crimes. No, they never, the, the crime never took place. There was there was never a Herald Square bombing. It's it's unbelievable. It's like dystopian. Actually, I uh, did the story sort of similar the Fortex Five story a few years ago, and at trial the judge said something which is unbelievable. He said that, you know, that there is not more evidence of these uh, defendants' uh, crimes does not concern the jury, and so does not concern me either, because their beliefs I cannot deter them. Wow. Before sending them to life in prison, life in prison in ADX, which is the worst. Uh, one of the most extreme prisons in the United States. So it's like there's a very dystopian undercurrent to all this, that there are these people being put in jail for crimes which did not exist or, you know, things that they said which they never did or things that informants tried to get them to do, which they often never agreed to anyways. And, you know, they're being punished worse than people who actually do commit murders or other egregious crimes and, you know, we're talking about accountability earlier in this conversation, like people who are responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands and millions of people, uh, you know, they fail upwards. People who didn't do anything to anybody are going to jail for 30 years in life. It's a bit uh, disillusioning, I would say, for people's faith in the system, judicial system, political system. I mean, I've looked at so many of these cases and really, like, kind of dug into the court files. And I'm always astonished by how many times a judge has kind of acknowledged the absurdity of the case. And I think this really gets to kind of the chilling aspect of what's been happening after 2001 is that, you know, we tend to think that there is a separation of branches and that there is accountability and checks and balances, but there really wasn't after 2001. I mean, the media, the executive, the uh, courts, the um, law enforcement, they were all kind of working in tandem towards catching the terrorists and putting them away in jail, even if they could recognize just how absurd it was. So, you know, there were all these really egregious cases in the first 10 years after 9-11. And then there was another wave of similar cases uh, related to the ISIS, emergence of ISIS and the U.S. war against ISIS abroad and at home. And there was a bit of a difference that was observable in the cases. They were more uh, focus on individuals and more focused on as opposed to finding uncovering supposed like multi-individual plots they were people who were often homeless or uh, had extreme poverty or drug abuse problems and so forth and at the same time you know there's been some sort of shift like some of the crazy insane things that were said and done in the first decade or so after 9-11 seem to be more resistant to that uh, do you think there's been an improvement or at least a trajectory of improvement that could be built upon from the years after 9-11 and, you know, whether in civil society or the press? Or are they sort of in the same stage of going through a cycle and then we're about to dip back in the same the same place we were before, potentially? Okay. Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, no, because 
a lot of the same policies are still in place. There have been lawsuits that have helped curtail the NYPD spying program, for example, but we still have very little transparency of how the FBI uses its informants and when. And just to say that the FBI staple of informants is 15,000 people now, just huge. You know, we, we still don't know why and when the government will use informants, what will actually be the reason that someone is arrested. Courts and governments still use secret evidence against people, against defendants. They still use the broad charges of material support. There's still surveillance allowed on the books. So there hasn't really been a curtailing of these policies and instead an expansion of them. But what I do think is different is that there is a lot more organization. I think we have a lot more people in the media, uh, among the Muslim community, activists um, that are speaking out. And this was not the case in 2001. I mean, it's hard to overstate, but there was a legitimate level of fear among the Muslim community, among immigrant communities who did not feel safe enough to stand up for others. So, you know, even uh, we were talking about the Mateen case earlier, the case I covered, a lot of his community members didn't show up to the courthouse because they were afraid. They didn't testify on his behalf because they were afraid. A lot of people didn't speak out. And I think that really is changing uh, in, in actually transformative ways. The fact that there are more lawsuits, the fact that there are more journalists willing to question the government, I think is key. One of, you know, we were kind of talking about this earlier, even in the foreign policy aspect. But I think one of the biggest failures of media has been to be deferential to the government on national security matters. Even, um, you know, Rukmini Kalamachi, the, when she did the Caliphate podcast, she relied on uh, intelligence officers' intelligence about this guy being on a no-fly list as an indication that he probably had terrorist ties. But a lot of people who have been covering this since 9-11 know that a no-fly list does not actually suggest terrorist ties. I mean, it has been used as a measure against Muslims and a discriminatory measure, but it's been used problematically and it's been abused. And I think a lot of journalists now are uh, pulling away from being so deferential and actually questioning government's claims. You know, one of the theme of this episode has been in large part about accountability. And, you know, we talked about the foreign policy aspect of the war on terrorism and also the domestic policy aspect, if there would be accountability and an actual constructive solution moving forward, a constructive approach moving forward, what would accountability look like abroad for U.S. foreign policy and what would it look like at home? One of the things that really worries me is that because we have supposedly ended our engagement, our war in Iraq, for example, or ended our war in Afghanistan, it means we've ended our military operations there. And that's not necessarily the case. We still have the legal justifications to use airstrikes and drone strikes against people in, in a lot of countries. And we, we already do that. And it's not just air power. The, the way that our war conduct has changed is that we rely more on proxies on the ground as well. I mean, this was something that really Obama the Obama administration pushed his 
you know, buy a way through policy, which was to use proxies on the ground to do America's dirty work. And I worry that these wars, if continued this way, will recede from public attention. And I really think that accountability, at least on a foreign policy perspective, looks like questioning the government's claim every time there is a drone strike. I would like to see Congress actually having sessions about hospitals <laughs> that are destroyed um, and you know people who are disappeared because of the U.S. or because of the U.S.'s war and fight. There really needs to be more holding power to account uh, in Congress, in the courts, and in media. And one of the things I would really, really love a White House reporter to do next time is to ask the Biden administration You've pulled out of Afghanistan. Are you going to end the war on terror? Because that really requires an, any administration to answer, what is this policy that we keep continuing? What is our end goal? The unfortunate thing is it is sustainable, but at what cost? It's at the cost of our vision for a better world. And we are continuing to disappear and help kill civilians abroad for a policy that I don't think any of us actually can define anymore. Rosina Ali, thanks for joining us on Intercepted. Thanks so much for having me. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is our lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next time, I'm Murtaza Hussain. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.